Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm Greg Wolf. Carolyn Forche is one of America's leading poets, but if you are lucky enough to spend any time with her, you'll quickly see that there's nothing of the celebrity about her. Here is someone who's fully present, attentive, tuned in, and it's exhilarating. For those lucky enough to attend Image's Glenn Workshop program this summer, Carolyn was truly a presence in her poetry workshop, her reading, and during the wonderful hour we spent together talking about sundry topics, including the nature of attention, her teaching methods, the poetry of witness, and more. Carolyn is a longtime friend of Image, serving as one of our editorial advisory board members and as an exemplar of how to produce exquisite work that lives at the intersection of art, faith, and mystery. It also turns out that she's a great storyteller. During our talk, she recounts some amazing tales, such as the time she was stuck in a North Dakota snowstorm with two giants of modern poetry, Cheslav Milosh and Joseph Brodsky, who tramped through the blinding snow in search of good vodka and bushmills, respectively. And failing, by the way. Then there's the haunting story of her time in El Salvador with Oscar Romero, the Catholic bishop martyred by death squads not long after he advised Carolyn to leave the country. This is a conversation I won't soon forget, and after you hear it, I suspect you'll feel the same way. Carolyn Forche, welcome to the Image Podcast. Thank you. Here we are in Santa Fe at the Glen Workshop, and you're teaching one of our poetry workshops. How's that going? It's wonderful. I have a group of 16 poets, and they are very thoughtful readers, very careful readers, and they know how to talk about texts. Uh, I... I assume because many of them appreciate texts as people of the book. And I'm, we've had a great week together. It's become a kind of community within this community. And uh, it, I, the time flies every morning. We have three hours and it's gone very quickly. Well, we're really grateful to you for being part of this experience. And we had you here a couple of years ago. And you've been so generous with... The class, I know you've kept a little Facebook group, and now you're adding this group. Um, that's an extraordinary commitment. I think community and conversation must mean something to you if you're willing to invest this much. Tell me a little bit about your pedagogy again. I, I think that's fascinating. Um, well, the, the pedagogy is founded on a, the principle of community so that the, uh, the classroom is not a site of inculcation of, of certain kind of uh, material um, or a, a site of indoctrination or a site of transfer of knowledge, but rather uh, a, a community that is um, that we, we are all uh, involved in the discovery of whatever we're doing. And for a poetry workshop in particular, you have to have a, a kind of a commitment to each other on a, a very deep level. First of all, you have to be able to trust uh, the other people in the room. Often the material that's read is very um, 
provisional, fragile. Uh, they're often they're fresh drafts, and sometimes they're revelatory of a very painful experience or something. So we have to be able to trust each other, and building trust from the very beginning is crucial. And also, um, we make commitments to each other as regards criticism and close reading, so that what I want each of the poets in the room to feel is deeply and closely read. So that what happens when, when that occurs is that any kind of revisionary um, criticism or uh, any suggestions for edits or anything like that can be accepted much more easily when one feels that one has been taken seriously. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to have a community. We can't, it can't be... Um, one directional. It's a it's a multi-directional room. So there, that's what we do. And it's not me- it's not mechanistic. I mean, it's it's a human process. Right. So. And it builds. And it right now we are in our second. We had our second to last meeting today, and I realized because the discussions were so much more animated. They've, all, they've always been wonderful all week, but they got very almost heated and animated and people were all arguing about various matters. And I realized how relaxed and comfortable they were to be able to do that. I was very pleased. There was a moment when I kind of stepped away and watched the group and uh, I thought, look what's happened here. You know, they're, they're very open. They have the no holds barred. They say what they really want to say now. They don't try to figure out how to word things so that... And so, well, there's that community learning in action, right? And and although I will say it takes a, a sympathetic and and tactful guide to maybe facilitate that kind of thing. So I'm gonna I'll flatter you to the extent that <laughs> I suspect you're pretty good at that. Though yeah. I haven't ever had the benefit of being in the classroom with you. Well, this <laughs> this pedagogy involves surrendering uh, quite a measure of control. <laughs> you know, you don't have the the power that some some professors seem to need to have, yeah. but um, it's been a really fruitful experience for all of us. And you know, I regard teaching as very serious matter, and yes. as and it is in itself um, a commit a, a social a commitment to social justice. There is the the classroom is a site of social justice, and and so it's all of a piece for me. What I really have. What, what's been very um, gratifying in my life are all the moments when I can live my conscience and I can work in the world in a way that is in accord with my, my social commitments, my political commitments, my uh, spiritual commitments. There, and they, there's no, I, I'm, most, I'm most at ease when there's very little contradiction you know, when I don't have to compartmentalize my life. And, um, and at the Glen, for instance, at this environment, there's much less compartmentalization because people, even though I teach at a Jesuit university, um, there's almost a pressure not to invoke Jesuit tradition. Or, and, and so the, the pressure to remain um, distant from theological questions or whatever and to, be, to, to treat them... Um, as academic questions, the pressure to be secular in the classroom 
not, not only ecumenically inclusive and religiously tolerant and all of that, but actually uh, refrain from discussing matters having to do with faith. So here, that's not a problem. That's, that's gone. This community, whether or not, and I don't think everyone in this community, they're not all believers, they're not all practicing anything, but they have a kind of acceptance and openness toward, uh, toward a certain dimension of human experience that is often cut off in our, in our culture. And of course, particularly uh, fraught now, you know, is the experience of Christianity in the United States right. because of the politicization of it. Right. So um, I think that the Glen has, what you've created here is, a, is, is the same thing that I'm trying to create in every classroom I enter, which is uh, a, a community space. I don't call them safe spaces because I don't, the whole concept of safe space Every, every space should be safe. That should right. just be a given. Right. But what this is, is it's a space where people fe- can feel holy themselves rather than mm. compartmentalized and you know leave their spiritual lives at home or something else. So, so I'm, I'm in, when I said I have a community here inside your community, it, I don't, I'm not in conflict with what's, hap- what's happening in the larger community of the Glen. The way that sometimes in some institutions, my classroom is a little oasis, mm-hmm. you know, or an escape from what's going on outside that classroom. Right. I'm not talking about Georgetown now per se, but places that I've been. Yeah. Well, again, I honestly don't mean this as flattery, but I think one of the things that I've just has always struck me about you is how, pre- <clears throat> excuse me, how present you are. I mean, there are a lot of people who are, you know, distracted and they're, they're, they're marking time, but you, when you commit to something, you commit yourself to it. Um, and you, you know, you're present to those around you and that takes a lot of energy. And, you know, for someone who's had some literary success and, you know, a lot of people coast. And so I hope you'll forgive me if I, if I just say something nice about you. You're forgiven. <laughs> it's a little uncomfortable, but it's it's okay. It's all right. Okay, you know, I'll, the, I'll relent. We it, can cut it the, if we need to. No, it's okay. I presence is important to me to be present for people, and uh, but it's not. It's a it's, spiritual again, thing too, right? It's an exchange. I mean, I I get something from the other when you're attending to someone, when you're paying attention to them on a deep level and or on many levels, they are. They're just open. They're just, it's something that they give back to you. So, you know, I, I, I know it can be seen as a requiring energy. It also gives energy. Well, that's a good reminder. It's, and it's like when people talked about, um, you know, in another, in another realm entirely, if we talk about a, a situation of peril, say, in a country a war, at war or something, Oh, we have, we, have, we, <laughs> we have, have the heavens speaking. We have a thunderstorm in Santa Fe for sound effects. I think the, I hope our listeners enjoy it. Oh, I hope so. Um, you know, people people say, "Oh, wasn't it terrible? Wasn't it dangerous? Weren't you frightened?" You know, and and also imagining that everyone I would encounter would be somehow um, frightening. 
And I say, you know, I've met the most radiant souls in environments like that. And, you know, in the worst of situations, there's always, uh, there are always people who are vigilant, keeping vigil, maintaining a kind of space for for uh, life to continue. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't see the energy going one way, particularly. I'm not saying that when I leave the classroom after three hours, I, I need to recover. Of course. I need downtime. But so, do, so does everyone yeah, else yeah. who's left that room. I see them walking around by themselves yeah. after class, yeah. and I'm happy they're doing that. Right. Well, and I think you've also spoken about, I mean, this is where art, faith, and mystery, as we, as our tagline for image says, kind of meet. Because when you talk about attention, I know you, you say that, you know, attention is about a kind of presence and about opening oneself up to a, a presence, whether that, you know, of course, one hopes and prays that at times that's a divine presence, but but under the under the aegis of that divine, it's often really just the presence of each other, mm-hmm. which we've been who we've been given to um, to undertake our way in this world. Um, and so um, I think I think we both love this Simone Weil quote about attention. We do being an act of generosity. We both love Simone Weil. So we do. <laughs> yeah, I I loved. I think that she's probably responsible for that quote that makes the rounds in various forms, the quote about poetry being the natural prayer of the human soul. It's not actually the quote, yeah. but huh. it's something that people have made use of in various ways. Yes. I've heard it attributed to Paul Salon, to Walter Benjamin, to many, many people in, in various iterations, but um, it's not just, it, it's, it's that attention is the prayer of the soul. Yeah. Attention itself and learning to pay deep and close attention. In my earlier life, I was quite a daydreamer. I, and I'm not saying I've really entirely stopped that, but I could drift off and get distracted in the midst of anything. And I had to learn not to do that when I was with people who needed my presence. Mm. So, And that meant motherhood. That was one such... Um, training ground for paying attention, and also, I uh, think being before that, being in countries where there was uh, extreme violence, mm. uh, you can't you can't drift off. The man who was my guide and mentor, whom I'm writing about in this new memoir, uh, would stop me whenever I was doing that and say, "Stop! What are you thinking about? Because you're not paying attention." Mm. To what's going on around you, and that could cost you your life. So I would like you to focus, you know. And he would do this constantly to me. So, um, and thank goodness he did it before I became a mother, so, so that I could um, be there for my son. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, a friend of mine once uh, we were talking about this very same subject in relation to children, and he said, he said, think about this. How many times did your when your child was trying to ask you a question or was bugging you for something and you're reading the paper, how many times did they take your chin and their fingers and literally swivel your head toward them, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because they needed that face-to-face. They needed that immediate presence. 
And you were so reluctant, they had to actually swivel you around to do it. They anyway. will take your face in their hands, yeah. and they will move you to position and well, look in your eyes with their eyes, and yes. they'll get your attention one way or another. And so uh, in terms of the poetry workshop here, I think that's also been um, part of our reader reading experience was to attend to each other's work. And to pay attention to that. And as a teacher, that also means paying attention to the room. Noticing when someone's tearing up or when another person is uh, stewing about something. or you, know, you have to know what's going on at all times in the room. And, uh, be, and you have to be able to preempt crises. And in a poetry workshop, you get everything. It's not... Uh, it's, it's not... Um, it's very deeply personal. It's a kind of course that isn't like other courses in the university because the students actually get to know one another quite well and, and say in another kind of course, they might not at all. Mm. They might not even know each other's names. They're focused on the professor. So, um, and they, because they reveal so much of themselves, it's a different kind of environment. Mm. And... You know, there can be emotional crises in the room. And it's always been an uncomfortable dimension of my work in the university because I'm not trained to, you know, respond to psychological crises. And it, but it seems somewhat insufficient to just direct them to the clinic or something, you right. know. So you have to be in, somewhere in the middle. And, and, and so I just offer a human response rather than a professional one. Right. And in a way, seek to find out how the making of word, the, the making of poems can not just be therapy, but can help us to understand ourselves and help us to um, reflect on, on what's going on within in ways that at least give us a little greater purchase on on our traumas and our, our all those inner crises. I think there's a wisdom to be gained from reading and writing poetry. I I agree with that. I worry a little bit when we begin to imagine poetry's role as to provide consolation or mm -hmm. be salvific in some way because poetry has no role outside of itself, outside of its manifestation in language. And it doesn't solve problems and it's not a substitute for serious therapy, you know. Of course. But the process is educative. So we gain a great deal. I, I remember Ann Carson did a recent, the poet Ann Carson did a recent interview where she firmly stated that she didn't believe in in poetry is therapeutic. And I, um, I agree with that. Not that it can't become so sometimes, but that isn't what we right. should look to it for. Right. right. That would be reductive. Yeah. Well, okay. So let me, let me see if I can spin this a little bit differently, but maintain some thread. So if poetry is in, involves a certain um, discipline of attention... Um, it is about the poet asking the reader, but also herself, to to be able to maintain a gaze on something that 
can be difficult, can be something that one wants to turn away from. I always, I always think of that great quote from the Japanese film director Kurosawa, who said something like, the artist is the one who does not look away. And to me, you have been associated with this phrase and with this reality of the poetry of witness for a long time. I don't know if you coined it or just your championing of that dimension of poetry just associated you with it in a lot of people's minds. You've edited a couple anthologies along those lines. It's been a very important part of your life in terms of social justice and awareness of the political. So surely that kind of poetry is about, you know, inviting, urgently inviting others to attend to injustice to to things that need and deserve a response well the please nuance that in whatever history, way does it properly <laughs> but the the history of that phrase um, I first wrote that phrase in an essay that was published in American Poetry Review in 1981 it was something I came up with to name a space that I was trying to imagine between the domestic sphere of the hearth and the personal life and the institutions of the state. And this was a space that um, I think was in, envisioned at the founding of our country uh, when a very strong role was in, um, declared for the press and for debate and for the public houses and for um, the public sphere. That public sphere has shrunk in our country. And to the point where now the press is under threat in a way mm. that I hadn't seen it in the past. So I, I called it Poetry of Witness because I was reading a great deal about and working with Holocaust scholars at the time. Hmm. And because I was interested in the writings that had been made in the aftermath of the Holocaust by survivors. It was around the time that um, deconstruction was entering the the academy in a very strong way, and and there were claims that were made or not made for the relationship for the relationship between um, the word and and what it represents. You know, the, in other words, the the implications of deconstruction for me were dangerous when it came to. Uh, writings in the aftermath mm. of extremity. Right. Um, and the way that representation was being thought of, about at that time inspired me to be very skeptical. Yes. And it was before Derrida made his ethical turn. It was This was a, a, a small period of time in the late 70s, early 80s. And as you know, I, I worked a great deal with Terence Dupre, and he had written The Survivor and Anatomy of Life in the Death Camps, and he included in The Survivor uh, some meditations on poets. He referred to poets. He referred to Anak Matova and others. And, and I gave him a lot of poets in translation uh, who had endured or suffered military occupation, warfare, house arrest, forced exile, uh, extreme forms of censorship, torture, imprisonment, and so on. And because I, and as I 
shared this work with him and he became interested in it, I realized that most poets of the 20th century, and now I realize subsequent centuries as well, had suffered those experiences. So because there was a proscription in the United States against writing political poetry, and that was vaguely defined, vaguely understood, I began to realize that what it really meant was anything identified as oppositional. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but, what, but, but certain material having to do with certain situations, for example, El Salvador in the time of the death squads, was not supposed to be written in poetic art. It was mm-hmm. not supposed to enter into it. And I wondered why, mm-hmm. and I wondered what other poets had done. And that's what gave rise to this you know, constant collecting of work and amassing this this work that was specifically chosen um, for the, specifically chosen according to the experiences of the poets. So I wasn't reading everything written in the 20th century by poets in translation and in English from all over the world. I was selecting those poets who had been interned, who had been... Um, uh, placed under banning orders, say in apartheid South Africa, poets who had uh, survived the Holocaust or or were soldiers in the various wars prosecuted in the 20th century. So um, this, I was amassing this and thinking about it and thinking about it. And I was reading a lot of theory then, a lot of philosophy, and, and trying to come to terms with this. In 1983, Czesław Miłosz published The Witness of Poetry, which wasn't a name for this space, but was really important to me. Uh, it, I, I was very pleased to see it. We subsequently had a lot of discussions together, mm. Cheslaw. Wow. We, we, we talked about it a lot. Because, I wish I could have been a fly on that wall. Oh, there's one wall that you really would have been a fly on. You would have loved this because it was Joseph Brodsky, Cheslaw, and I stranded in Grand Forks, Forks, North Dakota during a blizzard. <laughs> and... Of course, Cheslov, Tell me you've written about that in your memoir, I, I please. Want, I want to write about it. Cheslav was wandering through this. We were all wandering through the snows holding on to each other in this blizzard because Joseph wanted to find a tavern in Grand Forks that had bush mills. He couldn't find this. Cheslav wanted a really top-shelf vodka. He couldn't <laughs> find that either. So, But eventually we, we settled for what we settled for, and then the arguments began because... Um, and it was... It was uh, it was Cheslav who who intervened between Joseph and I. We all became friends and we all remained friends. But that that was another piece of that argument that we had for three days during that whiteout snowstorm was uh, very helpful to me. And anyway, eventually I had the anthology, and eventually, for, due to really uh, serendipitous uh, sequence of events, I was able to publish it and against forgetting poetry of witness. And then, to my shock, people started talking about the phrase poetry of witness. I was really, I was a little bit horrified in the beginning when my students would use this phrase. And I would say, it's not a thing. I made it up. It's not like romanticism. You can't go around using this phrase. You know, it's it's not understood. It's not part of the literary lexicon. This is not a literary term. Well, it wasn't a movement per se because no. it was all these individual experiences, but it was a thing. It is a thing. 
Right, but I realized that it that it was had gotten away from me, and that it wasn't. It was now out in the world, defining itself and enlarging itself and taking on different forms. For me, it was a mode of reading. It was not a way to write. It was a way to approach texts mm. that had been produced in the aftermath of extremity and by individuals who had passed through that extremity as had their language. And the language had been marked in some way. And I wasn't interested necessarily in subject matter. It didn't have to describe experience or even refer to them. I was interested in certain qualities of the work mm -hmm. that... Uh, for one reason or another, seemed to make to hold the trace of of that extreme experience, and whether that's a constellation of imagery or um, what what they sometimes say in the therapeutic situation is that the voice narrating its trauma breaks apart at the core of the trauma and begins to be fragmented and disconnected with gaps. And I sometimes would see this in literary works and mm. I became interested in when that happened. I mean, Paul Salon, for instance, whom I think is probably the most exemplary poet of witness of the 20th century in Europe, um, he, he, he's read as very hermetic, very cryptic poet. But for himself, he was attempting to be perfectly clear. What he wanted was utmost clarity. Mm. And so did, for example, the American poet George Alpin, who also wrote in the aftermath of war. And, and he actually explicitly wrote about his extreme desire for clarity. Uh, they wanted to be read. They did not want to obfuscate anything. Then there were poets who... You, you could tell what had happened to them because of the way they, the temporal dimension of the work. For example, Najim Hikmet, who spent half of his adult life in Turkish prison uh, for political reasons, in a poem, he'll have something like, he'll watch the ice slip from the jug of water as it melts in the spring. So a person who has time to watch the ice move down the jug that's an image from an incarcerated imagination. Hmm. So I would watch his imagery and, and realize that, that most of the time these images would be produced by someone who was confined and for whom time passed differently mm -hmm. because time would pass differently in their work. Mm -hmm. I just I, I became sort of fascinated by all right. of this and fascinated by the images that these poets shared and the way they almost seem to be in conversation with each other across languages, across periods of time. And, you know, it just filled my house. I had poets everywhere, stacks of these things before, against forgetting the final selection was made. And now some people use this as a phrase for writing about something, you know, like writing about the Iraq War, and that's poetry of witness. For me, it was a mode of reading and deepening the reading and reading for this dimension in the language. And that's all. I don't make any great claims for, you know, um, a, a, a species of writing or a particular way to write. There are poets who, who endured extremity who never wrote 
anything remotely connected to that experience. Mm, interesting, yeah. And almost the avoidance itself became yes. evidence. Because I see the language in the aftermath of extremity as evidentiary rather than representational. And that's how I answered uh, the Derridians, you know. I mean, Jacques right. Derrida understood this. Right. But, uh, but I, was, I wanted to make a distinction between the claims that were made for representation in language and, and what I was trying to do. Yeah. Well, there, there was really that crisis. I mean, if everything deconstructs, um, can we even maintain fundamental concepts like justice? That's where the ethical turn had to That's come. Right. Because exactly. otherwise it's a universal solvent that just, it just melts everything away. So what was it that initially, I know you traveled... I know you were in El Salvador. Yeah. I don't know what came first, the travel to experience places where there was a palpable evidence of extremity or, or your interest in that led you. But you, you, had, you began early going to other places and, and seem to have had a gift for it because you've gone all over the world. And it seems to have been a consistent pattern that travel and firsthand experience seems important. Can you tell us a little bit about how that started and, and maybe how in your memoir you're trying to maybe recount some of that? Well, the memoir is really the story of, of, my of the beginnings of my education. It's the story of you know, a, a young person. I was a young person uh, being awakened in the world to uh, a dimension of human reality that is uh, lamentably painful and cruel and and sometimes unendurable. What it's how it started for me was that I had difficulty after my first book was published, and I began translating um, with my college command of Spanish. I <laughs> I began. I I was um, I was friends with a woman whose mother was a poet. And I started translating her mother's poetry because it had never been translated into English before. And it had been translated into a number of other languages. And I went to Spain and lived with that family for the summer and worked with her mother. And this was Claribel Alegría. And she had grown up in El Salvador. She was born in Nicaragua. And I returned to my teaching job in California and was visited by a family member of hers who, whose idea it was to bring a poet to El Salvador and show the poet what was going on. Mm. And then when the war came, the poet would be able to talk about it in the United States. It was, had to be this U.S. American poet. So uh, that's what my memoir is about. It's about saying yes to that invitation. I didn't go there believing that I was traveling to a country at war. And in fact, I'm not sure I can, I'm very clear anymore about when wars begin mm. or, or when they end. Interesting. Really. I think that there was already, uh, the war had begun. It just wasn't, um, it, it, it wasn't open-armed conflict in mm. the traditional sense one mm -hmm. understands, either asymmetrical guerrilla warfare or conventional warfare. But it was, it, it was the time of the death squads, and it was a country at peace that no one had really ever heard of, and the only way I knew about it was through Clarivelle's poetry and her stories. Uh, but I didn't believe I was going into a war zone. 
And the, as, as happens in these situations, things can accelerate quite rapidly. Right. And it, and as it, as the, uh, as the death squads became more and more active and the situation became more and more dangerous, I became slowly accustomed to that. And I didn't, I traveled back and forth a bit, but I wanted to be there and I wanted, and I was committed. And I also discovered there, uh, a new kind of, I want to say the liberation church, Mm -hmm. people who were committed to the poor, Mm -hmm. people who elected their preferential option for the poor, Mm -hmm. which means you don't just work on behalf of the poor, you share their fate. Mm-hmm. So um, this was Monsignor Romero and a number of priests and nuns and, and friends and various people. And I'm, they were wonderful souls, wonderful people. And I felt awake, I felt awake and alive with them. And I, and so that was part of the reason why I couldn't leave it alone. And it was Monsignor Romero who urged me when I did leave to leave when I did. Mm. And of course, I spent my last time with him trying to persuade him to leave, and I was unsuccessful, and that was a week before his murder. And that's always haunted me, but he said something important. He said, "Um, you're now... Your place is with your people, and my place is with mine. And I never conceived of Americans as a people, or that I, I had a people, mm. not, not in that way. Mm. Um, but I, I, I realized that I had to go come back here, and I had no idea how I was going to do what he, what he was hoping I would do and what my mentor was hoping I would do, which was to speak about conditions in El Salvador in some public way. I was, I was not yet thirty years old, mm. and I had no. I had a book of poems. I had no public role. I had no opportunity to have one. So that that was also mysterious. How that, how how it began to be possible. So that whole episode was, in large part, a kind of awakening for you. You're saying you mm-hmm. didn't go down, kind of knowing what you would do. And the I experience, knew so little. The, and so the church, liberation theology, I mean, soon to be St. Oscar Romeo, uh, Romero, right? I hope. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Wow. So he, you know, I, I, it was a moment in, in time. And no, I didn't have a, any idea when I went what was going to happen. I was told that I would improve my Spanish, meet other poets, some of whom I might also want to translate, and that I would work in a rural hospital and I would have various people I would be passed among to learn about the country. And and then I would understand the conditions that were giving rise to what they felt would inevitably be some kind of political violence and possibly war. So I didn't know I didn't know I was a young woman educated in the United States. I was not educated in matters regarding my country's foreign policies. I was not educated very much uh, 
regarding my country's actions in other countries during especially the latter half of the 20th century. So I would say that I, I did, even though I had a college degree and even a master's degree, I was ignorant, terribly ignorant. And, and so when I talk about this as an education, I mean that I didn't know about the world until I was in the Campo in Salvador. Mm. And I was educated by people who had nothing, mm-hmm. quite literally nothing, and um, of, of they had no material possessions, right? And they had no resources, and but what they had was a wealth of uh, relationships, friendships, uh, understanding, spiritual discernment. They were awake. Mm. And it was incredible to be with them. And um, so that, that, there's that. So the memoir tell, tells, I hope, I hope it opens up that story. And I realize that, you know, I'm now you know, in my sixth decade of life. So I need to put this down. Mm. I, I need it. I need to tell my, my own story. Uh, in a full way, you know, and I need to disclose things that I have not hitherto talked about at all. I need to do this for my son. I need to do this for all of those young people who came from El Salvador as refugees mm-hmm. and whose parents would just, they don't, many of them don't really want to talk about this. They don't want to talk about that period. Mm-hmm. It's too painful or they want to put it behind them and I've had so many students from Salvador come to me in colleges and and say, "Will you tell me what happened?" So, and they have little, they've somewhat, they've heard things, but they don't. So I'm doing it. This is what I can tell them of what happened. Other people will have other dimensions of this story, but so this, I've been working on this book for 13 years, partly partly because I'd never written a prose, a book-length work of prose before. Mm, And what I, as a poet, was unfamiliar with was the whole process of structuring a book-length work of prose Mm. and just learning what I was doing. And I learned it as I went along. So I have another whole book in remnants and fragments and things that I've had to discard from this one and realize this is the story, not all this other stuff. You know, for a long time... I had five chapter, first five chapters that I had to discard completely right. because the story began on page 79. You yep. know, and you can't have your story begin on page 79. Right. But you have to write your way to that point. You have yes. to write it in order to understand where your story begins and what it is you're really writing about in this particular work. Right. And that's what this memoir has taught me. And I hope it will be all right. I'm almost finished. I have... Only paragraphs left oh, to complete. Wonderful. Yeah. A few little stones set into the bridge, and I'll be ready to cross the river. <laughs> so, just just to go back to that period briefly one more time. So, clearly there was a political awakening, but and there was also like a theological or a spiritual awakening. I mean, again, you probably I think you were raised Catholic, right? So it wasn't like these things were no. were utterly foreign to you, but they probably suddenly became a lot more real and profound for you. 
I mean, you've never made a secret of your Catholic identity. No. You teach at a no, Jesuit I, university, no. but you, you know, you speak in a public voice that doesn't rely on ecclesiastical language to be able to speak to people. But that's where some of your deepest inspiration comes from. Well, you know, I, I went to, I was educated by Dominicans for 12 years. And uh, that's the Thomas Aquinas gang. There. That's right. They're fierce. And and I you know so I was raised in a pre-ecumenical Catholicism, and that meant we lived the liturgical year, and that meant all of the liturgy was in Latin, and it was a fairly conservative church that I was mm-hmm. brought up in, in, including locally my parish, you know, was presided over by a very conservative monsignor, and. Um, I had that uh, background, and I was quite disaffected with the church uh, during my teenage years and and my and during my young womanhood when I was a young adult in my twenties. Um, I was no longer a practicing Catholic. I was culturally Catholic, and I knew that that I was. It was they, they, some of it was intellectual, some of it was philosophical, and some of it was it felt dead. It felt people were were going by rote to church and they were singing these songs with guitars and they were leaving, and there was so much injustice all around us, including what where I grew up, which was in the Detroit area, profound racial injustice. And so, what did this all mean? You know, we we go and we sing these songs and we and we receive the Eucharist and we and and it doesn't connect to anything else in our lives. So and we dress up and we go to church and we and I couldn't do it anymore. And in in El Salvador, I saw people who had nothing, who would have mass on a rock in the middle of a field, and who were willing to die for each other, and did. And that wasn't something I'd ever seen before. And they were, um, they lived what they, they lived their faith, not only within themselves, but within their communities. And there was no, there was no ostentation, intellectual or otherwise. So it was utterly new for me. My mentor was not a believer. He wouldn't enter a church, no matter what. He would drop me off. I wanted to go, you know, to, to the cathedral or something. But so he, it wasn't everyone, but he was very good friends with Monsignor Romero and Monsignor with him mm-hmm. and with the Sisters of Divine Providence. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, I think he kept Divine Providence Hospital and eventually the orphanage also going financially. He kept them alive mm-hmm. during the war. And so he had a lot. He had so many priest friends and friends who were Salvadoran nuns. And um, for someone who has nothing to do with it and wants nothing to do with it. And I never, he would never tell me why. I mean, he would never tell me, you know, why do you worry so much about these priests and nuns when you're an atheist? You know, what do you care? You know, and he wouldn't answer. Um, he's a he's the star of my book. He's a very mysterious creature, and he's really funny. So there's a lot of humor in, in 
I hope, <laughs> in oh. the book, because he, he's a character. Yeah. And uh, I hope I've done him justice, but um, I well, would Well, by, by continually re referring to him as your mentor and not yeah. naming him, you're certainly building up the anticipation. <laughs> I guess I won't force you to name no, names. No, you'll, you'll get it when he's there. By the book, I guess, is the, <laughs> is the right way to respond to that. So, so I, but it was interesting to have somebody be functioning in that community so deeply without any particular interest in, or without, with such an, almost an aversion, you know, to institutional religion. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing he wouldn't do to protect Monsignor Romero. Hmm. And yet, and he told, he considered Monsignor Romero to be the most important voice in the country. Hmm. And so I think that w w there was a somewhat of a shock to experience that Catholicism. And of course, there was always also at the same time, coterminous with that was the old-fashioned conservative institutional church operating in, in El Salvador, um, serving the, the oligarchy and, you know, the conservatives. And yeah. th that was always there. So there was a division. And I don't think I'll get in very much to that whole thing and the politics of that. But, um, but I, was, I was profoundly affected by those people, mm. by that manifestation of goodness really mm. it was goodness that I was seeing and feeling it wasn't so much they lived it they didn't talk about it so much yeah you know it wasn't something that and they didn't proselytize either they lived it so they were living right. their, their message they weren't speaking their message and it was there was a it was beautiful, and I was—I will never forget it. And in a way, it was hard to come out of El Salvador for the last time because I would—I wouldn't have that anymore, mm. you know. Yeah. So, but so my uh, spiritual inclination is really to do my job on Earth, you know, mm. to to do to attend to what presents itself to me to work and work and try to as as monsignor said to me once do, you know decide what should be done in every moment don't worry about the future don't worry about what's going to happen you aren't going to see the end of this you're going to be exiting before it's over so don't worry about it it no, doesn't matter and don't worry if you're being effective or if you're changing something. It's, that's not your issue. Your issue is to do the moment. And don't lose sight of what's going on. It's, you know, essentially he was saying stay awake and, and work. And so that's what I try to live. And right. that, that's pretty much... That's it. And yeah. I, I also because I understand the making of art as something that cannot be confined or constrained or directed outside of itself or put in the service of anything else. That when, if you're going to compose, for example, poetry, you have to be, you have to hover in meditative expectancy before the blank page and whatever comes will come. 
And what comes from any individual poet depends upon the full soul of that poet, what's in the consciousness, what the poet what the poet's formation has been, what the poet has taken into themselves, what is the quality of the poet's consciousness, conscience, and, and awakeness. And that's what will determine what comes to the page, not some decision the poet makes when they pick up their pen. Because you can't make a decision when you pick up your pen. You just start with a word or a line or a phrase, and then you drift around a little bit. And what Marilyn Robinson, who is a friend, calls dreaming on paper. Mm. You dream on paper, and, and that, is, that yields the poem. The work of it is eventually is shaping and revising and selecting, and, you know, well, that's the work. And that's what you can learn about from working with other poets and being in community and workshops, such as we're doing this week. Right. But you can't... Um, but the composing is another matter entirely. Uh, Walter Benjamin used to talk about three phases of writing, and I think it's true for poets as well as prose writers, and the first one was the musical phase of composition. And that's what I'm talking about one does in utter freedom. Hmm. And then the second phase is the architectural phase of structure. And the third is, is the, te- the, te- te- the weaving fra- phase, hmm. weaving things together and making connections and notice, well, actually noticing the connections. I can't remember who said this right now, but someone I remember said, uh, when, when asked, how do you weave everything together so well? And the, pers- the writer or poet said, I don't weave them together. I just uncover the weave, mm. you know, to show what's there. Yeah. So if you think about it in those three phases, and then work, and then also add to that the dimension of the experience of revision, and actually working on the poem, and and the minute little parts of the poem. That that's another that's another thing altogether. Yeah. Well, actually, that leads me to to the final thought here as we wrap up. That it seems like you have a new collection coming out. Fairly soon. Well, I'm 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 finished with a new collection. Okay. But it's waiting. It's sitting on the desk, waiting for the memoir to be finished. Right. And they're both going to be sent out at the same time. Ah. And I'm really hoping that they'll both be published by the same publisher. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. I don't have a publisher currently, um, so it's I have no idea. Yeah. And I don't really enjoy the process of publishing very much, mostly because of self-exposure. And, you know, I'm not someone who really enjoys publishing. And that's why I hang on to things for so long. I was going to say, I mean, but there's an admirable side of that because, you know, you're not rushing off to build a career and market yourself and all of that. You're not interested in that. No. Well, no, I'm not actually. And I'm not trying to. I'm really not. And I think that's why people admire you. So I think the irony is, the kind of beautiful irony is that by like refusing the siren song of the world to self-promote and self-publish, people then end up having a respect because you, when you speak, you make sure that it's got some depth. You're not just churning out content. You really save what you publish because it's had to marinate and, and to really become a meaningful statement. And I think that's why people look to your work and with admiration. 
but I, I want to say that I'm not disparaging all of that business, you know, people right. who actually really, you know, try to publish often and, mm -hmm. and try to get their work out into the world. It's very difficult to be an artist or a poet or a writer now, you know, and, and in some ways for many people it requires that kind of, uh, that work. Mm -hmm to put things out in, into sure. the world. Sure. I think I'm sort of aberrational and maybe some of it is psychological for me, you know, yeah. that they're hence less noble than, <laughs> than you're characterizing it. But, you know, it's more uh, self-consciousness that I yeah. have. Well, but, but it's I not... may be imposing some of my own. <laughs> I, I'm a kind of less is more guy. I, I tend to think, yeah, you too. know, I just feel like, Give it more time, it'll have more weight. Right. Right? And then people will really feel that they're rewarded by the weight and by the engagement with the work. Right. I agree. I, I agree with that. But I, I do understand that it's very hard for a lot of, young of course. poets and artists, and especially because young people they're now. They're trying to make their way. They're making their way, and there's very little, uh, there's everything's falling apart in a way and they have to build their own right. networks and publications and so on and there's been such a the arts have been deprived of public support to such right. a degree that this younger generation I feel really badly for what the situation they find themselves in well it's also confusing I mean nobody knows really how it's all going to play out what media people are going to be using and where the financial support is going to come how to make a life in in the arts that it, where it's a you time can of carve, flux. Right, and how do you carve time? I mean, you can't really live on most art forms. I mean, that's not going to pay your grocery bill. Uh, but how do you work so that you will have time to do this other thing, this work? That's what it is. It's finding that precious gift of time. And not only time on the clock, but the mental space of being able to be unfettered and undistracted for a certain length of time in the day. That's required of artistic practice. And it's very difficult in our society to carve that out and to have that, and to, and to have that gift. That's what they need, and it would be wonderful if we could evolve socially into a place where that was possible for anyone. Well, Carolyn Forche, you have been characteristically generous with your precious time here for us today. We so much appreciate your support for Image and your wonderful teaching here at the Glen and look forward to talking and seeing you again soon. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. If you'd like to learn more about how to spend a week in Santa Fe, New Mexico, in workshops and seminars with the likes of Carolyn Forche. Check out the Glenn Workshop page on the Image website, or just type into your browser, glennworkshop.com. You can sign up there for an email notification of when next year's Glenn faculty lineup and registration will go live on our site later this fall. Thanks for listening to the Image Podcast. I'm Greg Wolf.